Hey everybody, Anthony here. Uh, when we're not playing games, my kids and I love arts and crafts. My daughter has been known to stay up way too late behind a sheet, drawing and gluing in secret. So we go through a lot of supplies and frequently we run out of projects for her. Let's Make Art takes the guesswork out of picking paint and art supplies for new projects, offering top quality supplies that are perfect for the kids and the rest of us. The kids can learn art and lettering from professional instructors, and subscription boxes for ages 5 to 11 are full of the materials and tutorials needed for fun and creative projects. Let's make art simple, together. Check out Let's Make Art today by going to our special link, zen.ai slash boardgamersanonymous. That's zen.ai slash boardgamersanonymous to get 20% off. Coupon code is activated at checkout. gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together this is chris hey and this is anthony and this is episode 371 versus Ankh versus kemet we like to thank all of our patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode welcome back everyone we're so glad that you joined us here this week Anthony and I are going to get down and dirty in the sand this very week for our future review as we talk about the great gods of old, maybe in part Anthony, the moon god made this happen. It's possible because <laughs> Moon Knight is on and very big. But yeah. this week's episode, my friend, Ankh, gods of Egypt versus Kemet, blood and sand. Yes, yes, the two games we had to choose from two years ago when they were on Kickstarter. Early pandemic, too, when we're like, am I going to get more money someday? i got to spend this wisely. <laughs> so It's true. Yeah, that, that, was, that was Yeah, that was a really hard choice. We'll, we'll talk about that, right? We'll see if we actually made the right choice in the end on that, too. Mm, yeah. So, yeah, are you, oh, speaking of which, are you watching Moon Knight since we're talking about the Egyptian gods? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I watch all this stuff, man, even when I'm not. I think Moon Knight might be the first one where I don't really have a history or background with the comic. I know of it, but I haven't read it. So I didn't okay. know the characters. And so I thought that would make it more fun because mm -hmm. it's all new. I'm like, I don't know this yeah. story. I don't know these characters. I don't know what's going on. But it's kind of in the opposite where I am just don't find myself particularly invested um, it's uh -huh. interesting. I'm watching it. I just it hasn't really clicked for me yet. Mm. I was, I mean, it's something I'm familiar with. I'm I know about Moon Knight for all the comics back in those years, and Oscar Isaac is in it, and it seems to have a relatively good cast. So I'm excited about it. It's not following one of the major comic lines. It's kind of bouncing around a little all over the place, and it's got some new characters. So it's good. But I, I, again, I do find it weird, like these Marvel series that they have, they still have not 
wrap their head around on pacing. It's, yeah. It just seems like they know how to write a movie and then they take the movie and they stretch it out over like six, eight episodes. And I'm just like, I don't know what's going on here. Like it's this just one. This one really feels like it's just a movie. Like so far yeah. we're three episodes in out of six. It feels like the first half of a movie. <laughs> like Sure. Like the, the third episode ends and you're like, yep, that's the middle of act two. I, like just <laughs> if you look at the structure of a screenplay, that's the middle of act yeah. two. I don't, I mean, okay, more, more Oscar Isaac's great. He's a great actor. He's fun to watch. Yes. He, he hands it up pretty good. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll see how it, how they end. I say this with all these shows. I'm like all the Marvel shows so far. I think I feel like I've said this. We'll see how they stick the landing. Oh yeah. I get to the landing and I'm like, all right, I guess he, you landed. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. I guess. Yeah. Again, I think it is that cinematic universe, Marvel studios and, you know, writing a TV show is a different skill. And I know that all of these streaming services, what they really want is to have these kind of extended movie multi-part series so they can kind of market and draw people in and keep them around because, you know, otherwise it doesn't feel like, I guess what we're used to, which is that Marvel movie. But I know, like, it, there's been some bad versions of this already. This doesn't seem terrible. It seems like, like you mentioned, it does have that kind of movie feel to it, where some of the other series that we've seen previously have seen, like, just a very generic kind of television show. So, I don't know. I'm looking forward, like you said. We'll, we'll see how it sticks to landing. And I, and I think more and more these days, sadly, I guess especially with... with uh, Morbius that recently came out that everyone <laughs> yeah. hated, which again, I think is the other end of the spectrum when it comes to these cinematic universes where they're trying so very hard to make you connect with their next products that they completely disregard the idea or the fact that they should be making a movie. And that's just, that's just what kills it. You know, like Star Wars came out and like, it was a movie that was just it. It was just Star Wars. And it was so good that it like spawned sequels and a whole cinematic universe, but they made a movie, like they made a legitimate movie. And here it's always like, the movie really doesn't matter. It just matters. So it connects to other things that you purchase. So it's just like, oh God, this is, no, stop doing this. I just want to enjoy a thing. Can I just enjoy a thing? <laughs> yeah. Not everything needs to connect to everything else. Not everything needs to be like a reference or a callback. It's fine. Yeah. I really hope because they've said that with Moon Knight, it's standalone, right? It's not supposed to link to anything else. I really I hope they know. stick with that. And the last episode isn't like, just kidding. Here's Thor because he's also a god. They're <laughs> <laughs> like, no, don't do it. Well, there's a whole, again, I won't get in, I won't get into any comic book stuff just in case it might spoil future stuff. But Moon Knight does run with a team in some of the series and some other characters are coming out in the later cinematic universe. So we might see a, another, not an Avengers team, but a similar kind of, you know, mashup team up kind of thing. So that might pop up at the very end. Again, I agree with you. I really hope it doesn't. Again, I think yeah there's enough material out there that you can trust people to follow up and connect and people love this stuff. So sure. I mean, goodness gracious, man. Like I'm getting so many little Marvel chibis 
from Marvel United and X-Men United. They just actually <laughs> sent me a, an announcement. They're like, your thing is coming on Sunday, but it's only part one or two. And I'm like, oh no, it's actually coming. <laughs> I thought that was just a dream. I, I didn't mean to order all of that stuff. That was somebody else. <laughs> so I totally I Moon Knight did. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah, totally yeah. a Moon Knight moment. <laughs> yeah. that, was your, that was your Stephen Grant buying the... It certainly was, because I purposely would never order that many chibis in a spot, because I don't know where I'm going to put those things, man. I'm just like, that's really a crazy number of things to do. So nonetheless, it's it's fun. And again, it's all about sand. Now, if you don't like sand because it's coarse and rough and irritating, it gets everywhere, <laughs> then you're talking about a different genre. But nonetheless, we're going to be talking about sand this week. But we have a lot of other fun stuff to talk about, too. I think one of the things Anthony want to talk about before we get into like the really game game stuff is some of the game stuff that actually happens out there in the world. We talk about our listeners and what they're talking about all the time. But Mandy Patinkin, uh, I think, is a well-known actor that we all know, maybe not from his his specific, you know, real name, but maybe from The Princess Bride or from, you know, other movies that are out there. And he's just been a long time, just major part of like cinematic history. And that's not really why we're talking about him, where he kind of blew up on Twitter recently, at least board game Twitter, because he attempted to play Wingspan. And it did not go well, and it was recorded. <laughs> and of Poor course, guy. board game Twitter responded. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's tough. It's like, he's almost 70 years old. I mean, like we're picking on an old man. Um Yeah inconceivable i know but it is inigo montoya so he should be able to handle the board game that's all i'm saying he should they killed his father so he had to seek his revenge but (laughs) yeah he mentioned in a video that he was having a real troubling time wrapping his brain around wingspan and again a lot of people have made this comment and i think it's it's point it's important here to kind of mention we love board games board games are amazing for so many different ways And we've talked about this on previous episodes where once you learn one board game, once you have like one or two mechanics under your belt, then you know how to play other games because most of the games run off the same mechanics. But if you have not gained, you know, like gamed in hobby board gaming and that's the vast majority of the planet, then the concepts and, you know, themes in some cases and especially the mechanics are completely foreign to people. Yeah. So his challenge is not pretty, it's not surprising at all, right? No, not at all. Yeah. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, I'm actually teaching a class about board games uh, at Drexel Mm -hmm. University. I'm an adjunct there. And the single biggest challenge I've had is not teaching the games necessarily because the students are supposed to learn the games on their own. It's recognizing when a game is learnable, right? Mm -hmm. Because we have tens of thousands of hours of knowledge with board games. We've played them for, you know, eight, nine, ten years at this point. And so somebody coming in for the very first time and they've never played any of these mechanics, you know, obviously the gateway games and everything work well. But even then, like, is the rule book written in a way that somebody who's never played one of these games can unpack it? It's it's hard, you know, when you're an expert at something or, I don't know, expert, quote unquote. But if you've done it for a long time to like take 40 steps back and be like, is a normal person going to get this? 
So I definitely don't blame like designers or rules writers when they have issues with that, because it's really hard to like get out of your own head and out of your own shoes. Yeah. I have a sweatshirt that someone bought me that says, no, not like monopoly. Right. Cause that is the kind of like popular right. response that you, that you give to someone who thinks that every board game is monopoly. In fact, I know you'll talk about this a little bit later. I was at a Panera with a, a group of friends and we were playing board games there because it became the board game spot. And a mother came by with her two children and must have like scanned over the board and the kids asked about the board game because obviously they identified it as a, as a board game, which is great, right? The mother walked away and as they walked away, she said, oh, that must be Italian Monopoly. <laughs> and I just... I, that stuck with me. And I'm just like that again, that's her frame of context. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and that's, that's fine. That that's a reasonable, you know, extrapolation to make there. So it's not to fault her, but I think it is one of those things where, and I, and sometimes to be fair, like when I tell people I do a podcast, which is honestly few and far between. And I know that because no, because <laughs> we're still anonymous, but I often say to them, like, maybe you need to find the episode that, like, you connect with or something that's just, like, incredibly basic because a lot of games do, re you know, require some kind of general understanding of, like, what makes, for example, a Euro game or a modern Amerithrash game work. So, you know, if you're looking at a board game and, like, oh, it's a worker placement game, like, you take your worker and you, you get the thing that you place on. Completely understandable. So I would say the vast majority of board games always have a spot that lets you gain victory points. So if you explain to someone it's a victory point game and the most victory points wins, it would seem ridiculous not to take the victory point spot. And honestly, anytime I play a board game with people and they take the victory point spot, like, you know, on their first turn or especially if they're early in the, in the play order, I'm like, this person does not know how to play games because you need like generic resources to make it to other resources to build your engine and blah, blah, blah. But right. any average normal person would take the points. <laughs> they yeah. would just take the points. Like it's funny when you play a board game and you know, board games and you go, Oh damn it. I got to take the point spot. Like, yeah. you know, you have kind of, it's a consolation prize. Like, you know, that's like, yeah, you score five points, but it's going to put you five points behind somehow. So yeah. So, yeah, it's, I mean, yeah. yeah. No, definitely. It's, it's really funny because I've been writing about and reading about this idea of procedural rhetoric, like how the game communicates with the players based on the actions and the things that you're doing. And that's like one of those big things with like a disconnect because the audience for the game matters as much as what the designer is communicating. So if the designer comes in and they think this game is for everybody it's for the masses but then they use the language that they would use to communicate with gamers then the game might fall flat it might be really hard to yeah. get people to learn like you have to be able to zoom out and think in terms of like not just the rules but like the mechanics themselves and how the game flows from one end to the other mm -hmm. does it all make sense does it make sense within the context of the theme but it also doesn't make sense of like if it tells me to do x and i'm going this direction like oh so i'm probably also going to want to be doing these kinds of things um, it's such an interesting idea. Like when you start unpacking all these games that you've played, you're like, oh, wow, this game is so good because it does that really well. It tells me what I need to be doing later in the game. Or this game is bad because it doesn't do that at all. <laughs> and I have no idea what I'm supposed yeah. to be doing. It's just a bunch of random actions on a board. Uh, 
it's yeah we I, we could talk about this for days i think but it, it is really fascinating if only we had a podcast that was about i know <laughs> maybe we'll talk about it for days <laughs> different days <laughs> all right so yeah again uh, a lot to think about as far as that's concerned but again if you do want to and i highly recommend introducing other people to board games please do keep that in mind it's not a lack of intelligence it's just understanding the complexity of you know, juggling multiple plates at the same time in your head as you play any game. You know, the understanding of that, like, actions you take now will impact you, you know, an hour later, or that this game is pretty simple. All it has is set collection, card drafting, tableau building, and, you know, worker placement elements with player elimination, right? Like, you you get that. No one else is going to even get come close to that. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so keep that in mind and be kind so that it's not inconceivable that other people can play a board game. Now, Anthony, that's just generally what's going out there with people out there in the world. And again, we will be talking about this probably forever, as long as we have our great Patreon backers who bring us out each and every week to talk about board games with all of you out there. So if you'd like to join the masses to get board games out there to more people and populations, patreon.com slash BGA. I mean, just saying, because... The more that we do, hopefully the more people will understand the basic stuff that makes board gaming all the easier. Now, that being said, Anthony, it turns out that when we, when we call ourselves Board Gamers Anonymous, we've done a really good job of that for a lot of years. And it seems that, I don't know, Board Game Geek wants to recognize podcasts, which seems completely antithetical to everything that we do. <laughs> but. Right. I think every once in a while, right, we want to be known for the thing that we've done for almost a decade. <laughs> so they are currently running their own little awards program. And when I say a little awards program, Board Game Geek is the biggest website for board gaming. And the Golden Geek Awards is obviously the biggest for our industry. I mean, a lot of other people, including our own you know, podcast, does awards, but they're their awards get, you know, people into playing games and get people into playing podcasts. And it turns out each and every year they do give awards out for podcasts. And amongst an extensive list of podcasts that are no longer with us, and I mean like 90% of these podcasts on the list that are no longer with us, you could choose your very own Board Gamers Anonymous. You can nominate <laughs> us. You don't have to choose us to win. Just nominate us because, I don't know, it would be nice. I think so. Yeah, right? do both. Nice. Do both. Yeah. Stop short man. Nominate Aww. and vote for us. We're it awesome. We've be been around an honor forever. To be nominated, <laughs> Anthony. Just an honor to be nominated. And to win, which would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the funny thing too. Like as board gamers, like then you want to win a thing, and you're like, but I want to win a thing. So like I, every time I go to like an auction. And like things are being auctioned off. I have to remind myself, dude, you're a board gamer. You're going to want to win this. Like back yeah. away. <laughs> Auctions are bad, man. That's that's no joke. <laughs> so yes, if you wouldn't mind, if you would be so ever so kind, Golden Geek Awards are now on Board Game Geek. And if you wouldn't mind nominating us for best podcast, Board Gamers Anonymous, we would sincerely appreciate that. Thank you again for spreading the word about what we do to everyone out there. And also, let Manipi Ticken know. I think it might help him, too. Like, he might get into board games, thanks to us. So, Anthony, that's what's going on in the world about board gaming. But, of course, the most important people that we care about when it comes to board gaming is our listeners, of course. What's our question of the week? 
All right. Uh, yeah, so very thematic to kick things off today. Our question of the week this week is what board games do the best job of teaching you the rules via the rule book, <laughs> the in-game actions, or other? So again, this whole idea of teaching through all the different components, not just what you read in the rule book, but how the game actually unfolds in front of you. So um, lots of good answers here. Uh, AC Holt mentions... I read rule books first, try the game, and then skim teach videos for anything I may have missed. Um, I found Garp Hill rule books very comprehensive and teach games well. Also just got the new Libertalia and found that immediately quit to learn be- and play because of the rule book. Um, David mentions Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion as a gold standard as far as teaching Ooh. you a complex game over the first few scenarios. People learn gotcha. by playing. Uh, I... I'll pause it for a second because I love this idea of kind of unfolding and adding elements and mechanics into a game, you know, each time you play. I played the yes. Adventures of Robin Hood with my kids over the winter break, and it does that really well, especially for a family game where it just it keeps layering in new stuff and adding things. And it's almost like that I, you see it in legacy games where you're unlocking stuff and it adds complexity and rules. But like even more baseline, just like starting basic and just layering stuff on top of that as you go. Um, again, like Quirky Circuits is really good at that, too, where you're just like, first one, figure out how to move that robot around. Let, next one, okay, now don't knock over the vase. Next one, okay, now go through between the legs of the table. Like, you just add stuff in. It's really cool. Uh, Nathan mentioned Spirit Island. Complex game, uh, but I found the rulebook very easy to follow and entertaining with the world building. Um, Martin says, and I agree with Martin, the ones that hire Rodney to do a how-to-play video. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, those are all great. Um, Tom mentions for really heavy games, he appreciated the on Mars rule book. The iconography does a really good job there. Uh, Roman has a a bit of a controversial take. So while tedious to some really likes Vlada Shavatul's rule books, especially space alert and through the ages. Okay. Vlada's Vlada's rule books are kind of infamous as being, they're funny. It's a funny rule book writer, but they're also often, very dense, <laughs> difficult to get. Sure. I've never fully read the Mage Knight rulebook. I've always watched the videos for that one because the rulebook always mm. gives me a headache. Um, and then one of my favorites, the one I was going to mention, is Root. Corey mentions Root. Um, so they have the the laws of Root, and then the individual player boards that kind of give you all the information, and they also give you like a sheet that'll give like a walkthrough of your first few turns, like what you should be doing. Um, all the information is really easy to find, and there's a recommended setup for those first timers. So, um, and then when you want to kind of go beyond that, there's the full rule book that has all the, the different elements. So some people have issues with that, but I fully agree with what Corey said. I, th- I think Root's approach to, to rules teachings really, and it's kind of based on GMT's approach with like the numbered breakdown of, you know, everything's layered in, in the rule books. And that makes it really easy to yeah. find and break it apart. Um, but I've, I've always found that really accessible. Yeah, it's it's a really difficult question because w- what you're asking is obviously what's what's the best rule book, but again, there are more complex games versus lighter games. And sometimes lighter games and and I I know this has happened to both of us. Sometimes you get these light games and they shouldn't be a problem and you read the rule book and you're like, "Why is this so obtuse? Like why would why would they write it like this?" And again, when we you eventually learn how to play the game, you're like, "Oh, well, that's simple. Like, why right. would that be a thing? 
But then sometimes you play super complicated games and they have a good rule book and you can kind of get through it. You can kind of learn the game. And you're like, oh, that's 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 not too bad. You know, uh, I, I think the one that sticks out for me a little bit, again, is one of the situations we played a long time ago. I think as I, I guess I'm going to go generally with the GMT games because I think that has for me, I know you play 18 double X games, but the GMT games have some of the highest complexity level of board gaming. Right. And yet I've always been able to get through the rule books and those are really complicated games, right? So, yeah. Oh, yeah. so all of those, I give them the highest credit of being able to explain those games. I never feel daunted about playing those games considering the, the level of complexity. I will give a special shout out because again, what I always talk about, about board games, what I really love about board games is when they're, they're immersive and they're thematic in the way that you're playing the game and it makes sense. So like talked about this a million times, Agricola, right? So, Oh, you want to get vegetables. Cool. So you have to plow the land, you have to plant the vegetables, you have to give it time to grow then you have to harvest, right? Like that's what happens with vegetables, right? So, I think for me, the two games that always stick out with me that I always feel like I can pick up at any time because of the games more than the rule books is Dinosaur Island and Blood Rage because they follow the same thematic, you know, like stage kind of effort. Like first you do this, you get the cards or you get the, you get the DNA and then you, you know, you're able to do something with the DNA. You need the plans to build the dinosaurs and then you actually build the dinosaurs. Like it just makes thematic sense as far as that's concerned. And that's why a lot of games are really problematic because it's pasted on themes. Right. And when a game has a pasted on theme, it's just like, I don't understand why I would be doing this. Right. Like, and again, it could still be a very good game. Like Boone Lake is just clearly a pasted on theme. I'm like, why am I doing this again? Like, oh, because yeah. <laughs> the game told me that's what you do. And I'm like, all right, you know, like I guess, but yeah, you know, it would yeah, make no, more sense if the game would fit. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. No, 100% agree. Yeah, I was just reading um, Jeff Engelstein's Game Tech, and he has a chapter mm-hmm. in there about like when you're making rules, because it's, you know, the book's often written for designers that's the, one of the first things you should do is think like, what does the theme convey about the mechanics? It shouldn't yeah. just be randomly pasted on because players are going to come in with some level of information or some level of knowledge already. You can't assume they know everything they need to know, but you can make a very complex thing a lot simpler if it all makes sense within the context of what they do know, right? Like people yeah. know how farming generally works. And so if your farming game follows the general logic of farming and you're not like, planting seeds on your roof or you know sending (laughs) geese off to the market to buy dirt or whatever if it makes sense then the game becomes easier to follow and understand and remember um Mm -hmm. and it's amazing to me how many games don't do that very well (laughs) like Mm -hmm. they just don't make sense sometimes and you're just like okay so you had a math formula and you're like i have to put a theme on top of it like okay (laughs) and and then i think i think that's what you're what you're mentioning there i think it's so very true because if the game is does not thematically make sense, then the rule book is nearly impossible to write. Right. It just is. Cause it's just like, here's a bunch of mechanics, you know, just do them and right. then you'll score points. And you're like, okay. And that doesn't always really work very well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, 
All right. Well, if you'd like to let us know about all of the great rule books out there so we can get those games out to the table, please hit us up on all of the social medias. I mean, all of them. I mean, ones in the future that have not even been invented yet will probably be there at some point. So send us a message there and we'll get back to you. But again, don't forget BoardGamersAnonymous.com. I'm telling you, second best website in board gaming because it has everything that you could possibly know about us and connect with us and all of our resources and podcasts up there and some really fun articles and things to read. So check it out, but hit us up. We'll let you know. That is until, you know, Elon Musk buys Twitter and it shuts down or something. But (laughs) until then, reach out to us, I guess, especially on Facebook and Twitter, because oftentimes those places are where the conversations are happening. So jump over to those water cooler kind of digital areas and chat about board games. All right, Anthony. So that's everything that's going on with our listeners. Let's talk about the games that we want to hit the table and hit pretty hard, my friend. Let's talk about the acquisition disorders. All right. Uh, So this popped up after we did our BGG hotness last week, like the next day, as often happens. And it Uh is the long awaited, long, long, long awaited. We've talked about this a dozen times on this podcast, if not (laughs) a hundred times more re-implementation of Mombasa has finally been announced. Sky mines. So I, between the two of us, we've probably said 30 times whenever we're talking about uh, problematic themes, put it in space. They always work in space. space. (laughs) (laughs) Put it on a rocket ship and send it to space because the theme clearly doesn't matter. And if it doesn't matter, why re-traumatize a whole global population of people who are like, dude, that was really a bad thing that happened. I don't want to have entertainment value from it. Put yeah. it in a rocket. Go to space. Or we're going to put you in a rocket. Jeez, <laughs> like, come on. Stop it. Stop doing it. Stop it. <laughs> uh, so they, they put it in space. We got Mombasa. It's in space. <laughs> <laughs> so if you haven't played Mombasa, and not a lot of people have, because at a certain point, we all kind of universally agreed, rightfully so, that it's a very problematic game. Um, and it went out for it. Yeah, because no one bought it anymore. But yeah. it mechanically is a very good game, which has been the shame, right? Like this game that I think I played once. I don't know how many times you played it, but it's after playing it being like, well, that was a lot of fun. But ugh. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, it's basically about exploiting Africa for resources. Right. And so that's always been the problem. Sky Mines, you're going out into space and you're mining the moon and various asteroids and i don't know it's an alexander fister theming so it's probably going to be loose (laughs) and you know fast and loose with the the theme and how it fits but the basic idea is the same you're going out representing a company you're trying to generate the most wealth from the resources that you're collecting in space whatever those might be probably helium um and the main thing that makes this game so good is not that part of it that's always why this was such a shame. Like, why choose this theme in the first place? Mombasa. Yeah. The, the key thing here is, like, you're programming the cards that you're, like, as you discard them, you're programming programming them in in terms of what cards you're going to pick up and be able to play later in the game, right? And so there's all these different elements you're trying to manage. The cards is the main, main part of the game. That's the best mechanic. But there's also, like, where you're putting, uh, I don't know what they're going to call them here, but, like, the various outposts that you have. Um, I guess now they are calling them outposts. Um, that go out and kind of symbolize the different control you have of the different regions. 
uh, the different types of resources that you collect, the different tracks that you can move up that kind of impact the, the improvements that you make. And so it it's now if I wouldn't say it's problematic, but it's very like capitalism in space, the game, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, maybe in 50 years, we'll look back and be like, ugh, but it does everything in a way that makes sense mechanically within the context of what I've know about Mombasa. And I'm just happy that it's coming back in a format that we can actually all play and hopefully plays similarly enough that we enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, it was a real shame because the mechanics in Mombasa, I remember playing this for the very first time. And and again, when you play games with Euro gamers, typically no one ever mentions the theme. They're like mechanics two mechanics. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, seems kind of weird and the mechanics of this game is honestly a set of my favorite mechanics i love the you know that that idea that you play cards so the cards are actions and resources and then as you do that you're building up future hands to play so there really is a i wouldn't say it's a press your luck kind of situation but it is a challenge as far as what you do now you know, can severely, you know, limit you or support you in the future because you do have to play all of those cards. And it has those market elements to the game where you can run up those tracks and the tracks flip over and they have different bonuses to it. So there's just a there's a lot of good to the mechanics of the game. It's just the theme was weird and obtuse and bad for so many reasons. And again, thematically, it did not matter at all. Like there was no reasons, no care to this. So I'm really excited about this. I, again, I love the mechanics. So I'm assuming that I'm picking this up. This game has three modules, a four chapter campaign and a card deck for simulating the virtual player Luna. So I guess if you want to play this game solo, which I don't know why you would, but sure, because I guess every game needs to have a solo mode in it. So yeah, Sky Mines from uh, Pikaspiel will be coming out at some point this year. Yeah, exciting. All right, so let's, again, let's talk about, oh, my friends, acquisition disorders. And if we're going to have acquisition <laughs> disorders, they have to be ones that just break you, honestly. And, you know, talking about old games that went away and now have come back with a vengeance, this is the DC deck building game 10th anniversary celebrate the 10th anniversary of dc deck building game with injustice the flash versus reverse flash multiverse boxes and more this is currently on kickstarter and the campaign will run until thursday may 12th 2022 now it's kind of funny because it's a 10th anniversary and we're about to hit our 10th anniversary and i remember the dc deck building game hitting tables at myriad because daniel had brought that game to the, to the store, and we had played it so much that he stopped bringing it. He was like, I don't <laughs> want to play this anymore. Every time I play, every time I bring it, you guys make me play it, so I'm not bringing it. And he told us after, I was like, dude, we're sorry. Like, Because, you know, when you play, like, Euro games all day and, like, your brain is crunching, like, all the numbers, you're like, and I think we talked about this game. It was like, uh, I don't know, like, a, it's it's a potato chip game. Yeah, It's just something that you throw on the table. It's fun. There's not much thinking to it. It's an IP that I think almost everyone loves. And it's one of the simpler deck building games because I think if I remember correctly, they're 
I think there's only one, I guess, at least initially. They, they, they've expanded the game out pretty extensively. But what was funny about this game was as you built, as you beat the bad guys, because again, I, I, th- I believe it was only power that was really what came into play. There's other key words in here, but it was power, right? Marvel Legendary Hat was already out, and that was a, that was also another deck builder game. And you built up a team to fight the bad guy. Here, you fought, you know, the bad guy, and if you beat the bad guy, which is honestly, you really beat the bad guy. You just had enough power to pay for the card, and then it became part of your deck. So now Batman's fighting alongside the Joker. Now, I know that seems more, you know, obvious at this point. And obviously in comics, everything has happened. But that was back in the day where we really did mock that. We were like, this makes no sense, right? Like, why why is your deck, you know, heroes and villains and you're playing them on a, you know, to purchase other cards? And again, this game was very reminiscent or very almost identical to like Ascension, which had actually, in fact, two resources. I think they had, again, money and attack. This only had one, so this was a simpler version. And this uh, Cerebus engine for Cryptozoic was what they built all of their deck builders on. So it wasn't just DC. You had Lord of the Rings. You had Naruto. You had a hockey game, I, I think was I think that was in there, weirdly enough. There were so many different versions. I think there's a Rick and Morty one in there. There's a whole bunch of stuff that they came out with. But originally, the, the the main one, the basic one, the one that came out first was the DC deck building one. It was your superheroes, and I, I and it was it was a good game. It was fine. It was fun. And then they came out with other big box sets, and then eventually they came out with these rival sets where two players get to play against each other, and then these crisis decks which were based in like the new 52 and again that was kind of okay and then they just crossover packs where they they brought in like the real wacky stuff came into play so all the other different universes like watchmen or arrow from the cw or maybe you had batman ninja they they actually come came into play so now 10 years later they're like you know what that sold really well and dc is kind of a thing these days so let's put on Kickstarter, and now you can buy all of it. And I mean all of it. We're talking about all of the base boxes, all of the rival games, all of the Crisis expansions, all of the crossover packs, all of the, I guess, I don't know if they're all of the promos, because again, I, I think a lot of times they're like, it comes with the promos. You're like, but does it come with all those like little random ones? But yes, it comes with the promos in here. And again, there's exclusive covers, exclusive boxes in here. There's exclusive counters and, you know, all the little fun things to make the game even better. The artwork, I feel, is very good in this game. I I like it. Obviously, some of the crossover packs are different. The Injustice stuff, for me personally, is not really a thing. I mean, it's been done to death at this point. But I I guess if they have the license, they'll run it out there. So you do now have the opportunity to buy the multiverse box with all the Kickstarter exclusives in there and be able to fight the big baddies, but also to keep everything in one box. And as somebody who owns a good chunk of this, and I think at some point bought the wooden holders that go in the box, this is nice, right? This has everything. This has the dividers. You could play everything. And it is one of those games where you could just play with everything. Right, because there's, it's just that one mechanic, 
And again, unless you're playing two players or something like that, there's not really a problem with this. It's a good game. Is it worth the $200 for all of the stuff? (sighs) I mean, I, I feel like you need somebody who wants to have that kind of low complexity gameplay. And again, and I mean that in the way that there's only one primary resource in the game. There's there's other keywords, but there's only that one primary resource. And also loves DC. If you love DC and you want to have something that like plays with a lot of people, this is probably the one for you. I, I think this is a pretty decent campaign. Cryptozoic does a good job. Their games are typically not overly expensive. The add-ons here are nothing crazy. There's some decks, there's some mats, things like that. A lot of this stuff you can pick up online, you know, individually for cheaper because, again, as Anthony had, had said earlier, like, you know, these games have been in a while and they, they have been less popular, so you could probably pick up the pieces. But, yes, this is on Kickstarter. Anthony, my friend, you are the Batman of all Batmans in all the multiverses. Is this something you'll be picking up for $200? Uh, no. But okay, <laughs> uh, it's a thing though. Like I, I've been meaning for a while to pick up just the the plain DC deck builder game. Mm-hmm. I like I love DC, and I've always meant to own this. I just didn't have anybody I could play it with. But my kids can play this now, and I think they'd really enjoy it. Um, mm-hmm. The this campaign doesn't really speak to me because I'm not interested in the evil Superman stuff. It's just not. I don't like, in, like the. I just yeah. Like if you the gave Zach me all Snyder. the cool fancy stuff and all the ex, and all the promos and stuff but like with the original box i would buy that but Mm -hmm. and i guess like you could buy the injustice stuff and then get the original as an add-on but i don't really want to do that either so i might just go to amazon and buy the original game for like 25 (laughs) dollars and call it a day yeah um now that it's in my head because i just forgotten this game existed and now i'm like oh yeah this is cool um but yeah i'm not backing this yeah it's something i'm gonna look at i i you know again the, again, as you mentioned, there there could be and maybe even should be at some point. Like there's there's a whole episode to be had about you buy so much of a game or so much of the content of a game with the expansions and the promos, and now, which was not the case ten years ago or even five years ago in some cases, like now you just gotta wait, and then eventually they'll they'll repackage everything, reprint everything, and you can buy everything without driving yourself crazy on the secondary market. So I don't, you know, like, when do you ever pull the trigger now on a board game? I don't, I don't know. It's just one of those really complicated questions now, unless you have all the monies to buy a game and then rebuy a game like Mombasa. Like, I mean, back in the day, that was the game. And now it's like, you don't like that theme? Wait five minutes. You don't, you didn't buy everything. (laughs) You didn't get the promos? Wait five minutes. So, all right. So again, acquisition disorders to blow your mind. It's here. It's real. Check it out. All right, Anthony, let's talk about the games that did hit the table, and we'll let people know if those games are a buy and they should run out and pick those games up, if those games are a play and they should sit down and play them, if those games are, in fact, a dodge and they should avoid them, or, in fact, the games are the dreaded burn. But don't worry, they'll rise again like the Phoenix into a new forum that, again, you'll probably buy. So, weirdly enough, not everything's a burn, stays a burn, I guess, these days. So, Anthony, what did you get at the table? All right, so I'm going to talk about a new Friedman Freeze game uh, that I picked up called Free Ride. Uh, Friedman Freeze is on a bit of a roll for me personally. 
lately. Uh, you know, Power Grid's one of my favorite games of all time, and it has been for a long time. Friday was a, a regular staple for me, especially first getting into solo gaming. And so this is always like a designer where I always check out his games. The problem is the a lot of them aren't very good. So, <laughs> you know, like 504 is a bit of a dud. Fabled Fruit is apparent by all people love it. I don't love it personally. Power Grid, the card game, didn't really work for me. But played Fayum in PAX last year. Loved that, picked that up. Uh, and now Free Ride came out, and it it's pretty good. So let me tell you what it does. Uh, this is a game about building the rail lines in Europe. Uh, so fair warning, you really need to know general topography of Europe because there are 45 cities on this map, many of which I did not immediately recognize, and there are no country boundaries drawn on the map. So you need to know roughly where certain cities are, right? Um, it's a small thing, but it was a bit of a, a bit of a hurdle when I first started. Uh, and so the, the goal of the game is you're, you're building on all these tracks, right? And so you have, when you build a line, it'll be owned by you to start, right? But anybody can use it to move. And so on a given turn, you can build a line or you can move, travel on a line. If you travel on someone's line, it becomes state owned. It gets converted into a state owned line. And you have to pay them to do it. So they gain a coin and it becomes everybody's line to use whenever they want. And you, you, there's markers for you to you know, indicate that. Um, and so the network will build out and build out and build out and build out. And then you're trying to connect different cities and get to them to score various amounts of points, right? Um, you're going to get cards for doing that. And based on the cards that you get, you'll score a certain number of points. It's very simple. There's not a lot of complexity here. Um, but there's a lot of things to keep in mind. One, because you don't really own your own stuff for very long. But strategically, you're going to want to play stuff in such a way that you're going to gain more coins. Those coins are very useful to be able to do things later. And two, like there's a limited number of these cards. They come out from these different decks. There's a tableau available. And each deck only has each city in it at the most once. And then if with enough people twice. Um if you get the same city cards when you complete your routes, they're actually worth less points. So you only get you get five points for the first time you get a city card, but only two if you get it again. So, you know, chaining things together, like I went to the city four times, doesn't really help you. <laughs> it doesn't accomplish anything. Um, so you, you want to diversify and move around the map as much as you can. Uh, now, I played the solo game a few times, and that was a lot of fun because you have all of the neutral lines available to you. There's kind of like a big stack of like 50 of them. And then the game is basically on a timer. So you're going through the timer uh, and, and you're trying to get to all of the different cities before you run out of actions. And the actions are represented by the coins that you have to spend to take an action. Uh, and so you move or you place out rails and that's it. But you you have to do it in the most efficient way possible, like zigzagging back and forth across the map to complete all these different routes. Again, it sounds so simple, but it's such a fun puzzle. And I've really enjoyed going through it. Um, takes a little bit of time to set up, but it's it's really enjoyable. So free ride. It's it was surprisingly entertaining. I picked it up because someone recommended the solo version of the game. Um, I had a lot of fun with it and then I had a chance to play it just more broadly speaking. And that was also fun. Uh, I would say the solo for me personally, I had more fun with that than I did with the 
kind of um, full version of the game. So full version of the game is a play. If you are a solo gamer and you like Freeman Freeze's games and you want this kind of rail puzzle, um, that part of the game for me was a buy. But that's a very specific niche audience, I think. So for everybody else, though, it's a play. If you have a friend who picks it up or if you see it somewhere, definitely give it a go. Um, Free ride from Freeman Freeze. I had a friend who picked that up, so it's a free ride for me. <laughs> Woo! We're playing this. Because <laughs> I would never buy this otherwise. <laughs> no, no. I Honestly, yeah. I wouldn't have bought Freeman Freeze games for years. And then Fayum really surprised me when we played that. I really liked it. And so when somebody recommended this, I was like, sure, I'll give it a shot. Um, it's yeah. so weird, though. It's so weird. Like, I, I, I appreciate the fact that the production of these games are just the same production for like the last 20 years, but it's just weird. It's weird now. It's just weird. Cause it, it just looks generic as generic case. I, I mean, if it wasn't freedom freeze, I, I don't know if you, if anyone would even notice this game. Cause it just, it falls in that generic kind of bell curve of like games just like this. Yeah. A little bit, you know, it's, it definitely has the Rio Grande kind of look and feel. Um, yeah. It uses the same kind of board artwork as all, all, pretty much all of his games. The same palette. Sure. Everything's green because it's Friedman Freeze and he's he <laughs> likes his green. And, uh, and the letter F. Yeah, and the letter F. So they always manage to figure out a way to translate it because it always starts in German with the Fs and then they find yeah. a, some version of that in English. Some Except Power Grid. They didn't fast. even try with that. Flukerschlot <laughs> uh, <laughs> or whatever it is does not does not uh translate but uh, good for yeah, you i don't know give it a shot if you if you like this kind of game the rails and, and running around it is not like a full-blown train game at all though it, it's definitely like you're laying down tracks and you're trying to get from point a to point b it's it's a spatial puzzle gotcha all right so speaking of designers and their unique creations that we see over and over again I am talking about Ryan Lockett's new game, Sleeping Gods. This was a recent Kickstarter that delivered out. And it is about the voyages of the steamship Manticore and her crew on the Wandering Sea. Spoiler alert, there are monsters about. So basically what we're looking at here is a four-player game in the Red Raven Games, Ryan Lockett universe of having a I'm, I'm very having a hard time to kind of describe Ryan Lockett's games because the only way I feel confident of saying them is that they're a Ryan Lockett game. So if you've ever played Above and a Blow, Near and Far, even you know Empire of the Voids 2 or something like that, like he does the artwork, he does the game, he does the story, he does the vast majority of all of his games top to bottom along with his wife and they are an extensive solid production across the board i mean if you've ever played any of his games before this is yet another one of his games what was so intriguing about this was it seemed like the culmination of a lot of things he had done previously and this was going to be I don't know if I, I want to kind of want to take a step far or say like it's magnum opus, but like Sleeping Gods is a campaign game and it harkens back to a lot of his storytelling elements about this mysterious mystical world where you as a wanderer and traveler are going out there 
and encountering the weird strangeness of everything in a very PG, PG-13 type of way. <laughs> Considering like everything that could be out there is, is kind of crazy. So it's a four-player game. And what we're looking at as far as the game is concerned is you and however many players are playing. And in fact, my main takeaway about this game is, and spoiler alert here, I think this is probably best as a solo game. I mean, for me. I'm not a solo player, but Hmm. I played this with two other players. And I was just like, I don't understand why other players are playing this game alongside of me. Because really what you're doing is you're managing the crew together. So no one really owns a character and no one is a character. I remember when I first opened the box before I read through the rules, I was like, oh, cool. I choose this character. Nope. You get a bunch of characters, and when you try to meet challenges, fight monsters, or do anything in the game, you have an opportunity to use your PowerPoints out there to be able to activate the different characters, utilize their special abilities in order to meet challenges. And again, challenges are typically based on certain symbols on your cards or on your character and you want to meet a certain level or bypass that level. Even when you're fighting with a monster, same thing. You basically have to be able to have the requisite requirements that go into the game. And then instead of rolling dice to see if you're going to knock out the monster, you flip over card, and that card will give you a certain number, one through six. One and six is being half as uh, popular or populous as the other numbers in the game. So you might roll up against a monster with like a 10 strength. You look at your strength. You look at your weapons, everything you have that's available to you. You try to see if your accuracy works, if you meet the condition. And again, if you work, you do things. So it's an interesting game. I'm I'm trying to think back about, I mean, a lot of those co-op games are primarily like, you know, Pandemic where, yes, you're playing a character, but you're all playing those same characters together to achieve a common goal this one does seem to be a little more geared towards a solo mechanic because throughout the game you're going to pick you're going to get experience points and then that's going to give you an opportunity to you know purchase weapons and other cards to upgrade different characters and really you have to make that decision as a group so there really isn't that kind of like i want to bolster up my characters or i want to go on my own missions like the you know defenders of the realm You're all doing the same thing together. You're not splitting up because, again, we know that's never a good idea when there's monsters about. So you pick a place on the map. You decide in particular, you know, what you want to do. And then you just go about your mission. So very simply, the game comes down to one primary board that is basically your ship. And you will decide what portion of the ship you're going to activate They'll have a special ability, including giving you these action points that you will be able to utilize on your turn or in combination with other players. The ship can become damaged from a lot of baddies out there in the water, and you also have to repair the ship because at some point the ship's area is shut down, and that's a bad thing. But once you take the action, which will give you power points and give you typically a special ability, you take two possible actions. You can travel, and this is important because the main game book is just a book that's full of maps, 
And as you move around the maps, there's different spots with numbers that will relate to another book that will give you stories and conflicts and a very much a choose your own adventure activity. So you decide to, you know, you decide to activate a certain spot in the boat, you got your action points, you start, you decide to travel, then you get to choose, you know, either to explore that particular area, go to the market, which allows you to buy things if you have the gold, go to the port to be able to fix the boat and heal your players. But primarily, it's basically traveling, exploring those areas, going through the book, see what the number says, something happens. Again, I don't want to give away anything, but like things happen, right? And things are part of a larger story of, and again, I've only played probably about 10 hours into, no, more than 10 hours into this game. In fact, probably about 12 hours into this game. And I haven't come across the main crux of the story yet. But again, crazy things are happening. You have to be able to free yourself from this region. But early on, you're told that in order to do so, you have to kind of wake and free the gods, which does not seem to be a good thing to do. But nonetheless, if you want to escape, you have to do those things. So all the islands are going to give you different stories, different quests to fill out, and different quest words that will activate with other areas on the game board. So that's primarily your mission. You'll pick up different, you know, relics and runes along the way that'll be necessary for you to progress throughout your mission. There is a deck of just real baddie monsters. So typically when you go to an area, it'll say go to the monster deck kind of thing and then pull a couple of cards and you have to fight them. What's interesting about that is there's a grid on the bottom of the monster cards. So you kind of shuffle them up and you lay them out on the table and the grids, you know, match up together like you know the cards you push the cards together and the grids match up and then as you do damage you put damage markers but there's splash damage into the other monster so if you're right on the edge of one card you could do damage to the other monster so it's an easy way to like hit the easier monster and then do damage versus the worst monster so you hit all the monsters until you run out of stuff they hit you back and then eventually, hopefully, you knock them out, you get your stuff, and you save the day. So I can't give a full review yet because, again, this is a campaign game. And inevitably, it comes down to how the story wraps up in a very Marvel kind of way. But right now, I'm generally enjoying the game. I do feel it's a little samey, but again, I'm not terribly surprised with that. The story is really why you're here. The Ryan Larkin art is is good. The mysteries and the stuff in the book is good. The production is top-notch. If you bought the Kickstarter with all the goodies in here, you got metal coins. You've got a lot of little upgrades, realistic resources and things along those, that line. It's a really solid game. If you have Sleeping Gods and you need yet another person to tell you to open up and play it, I am telling you, open up and play it. I think you'll enjoy it, especially if you liked any other Ryan Lockett games. For me, right now at this point, this of course might change, and I'll give you an update later. The game is a play. Again, mostly because I have not gotten into like the hard main core part of the story yet, I believe, nor have I gotten the conclusion to the story. So right now it's a play, not a buy. It's a little expensive for what it is, and it takes a lot of hours to get through the game. So, Anthony. I know you haven't got a chance to play this, but uh, you're familiar with Ryan Lockett games, correct? Yeah, no, I am. Um, 
they've never really clicked with me, but to be fair, I haven't really played any of his recent story based stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. I played above and below once, like the first kind of crack at this. And by all accounts, that formula has really evolved and refined a lot. Um, So I I do want to play this game in particular uh, for all the reasons you mentioned. It's it was not high on my list and I've never backed any of his stuff. So just because I've yet to find one of his games that really clicked for me. But uh, this one, the way it's described, the the kind of the, the story elements and how it all comes together, I do want to give it a shot. Yeah, and a lot of the story elements seem very similar. Like almost every crew member has like, you know, my parents were raised raised me this way. So, you know, it's going to come back and play in later. Or my father taught me this skill. Okay, that's going to clearly become a thing later <laughs> on, right? So the foreshadowing is is pretty heavy-handed in the game. Like I said, this does feel like something... I, I feel like a preteen or teen group would really love this game because I think it's more geared towards a family gameplay game interest kind of situation. Mm-hmm. I I really liked Above and Below because I, I felt like it was it was obviously more of a worker placement game. So I like the fact that there was some cl- complexity to that. Sleeping Gods doesn't really have that complexity. Maybe the story will kind of you know, gear up a little more and kind of blow me away. Empires of the Void 2, I liked a lot. That's the game I liked the most from him, but I only really got a chance to play that. I don't know if it was like once or twice, and I think it was even poorly taught or incorrectly taught. I enjoyed the game nonetheless. I was like, oh, cool. It's like Twilight Imperium 4, but again, for more of a gateway gamer audience. So it's again, it's worth the play, especially if you like his other stuff that's come out previously. It's not any heavier than his other stuff, but it's certainly heavier than like Megaland, right? Or any of the games that are just simply do a thing. But we'll see. It's this is gonna this game is gonna lit the, the game mechanics are good, not great, but the story right now is okay. Hopefully it will be great and move it up to a buy. But right now it's a play. I, I, I'm I'm not mad about playing it, but I'm just still waiting for something to kind of like take it to the next level. I don't think the gameplay will do it, but I think maybe the story might take us there. All right, so that's everything that's at our table. So, Anthony, let's get on to our feature review. So our feature review this week is all about sand, and especially versus sand. So this week we are talking about Ankh, Gods of Egypt, versus Kemet, Blood and Sand. I, I guess, Anthony, we don't have a Blood Rage version of Kemet, right? Or a Blood Rage versus of Ankh. We don't have that same Blood Rage kind of, you know. It's, Eric Lang did Blood Rage, and he also did Ankh, but yet we don't have that, I don't know, right? Yeah. There's not that no, vibe I think if you there, yelled right? Ankh really loud, it would just sound like you're coughing. <laughs> no good. Ankh. No. Are you okay? <laughs> Yeah, my nose, you know, allergy season. I, I, I do yeah. that a lot. So. <laughs> so, Anthony, again, we have our history with, uh, obviously, we played both of these games. We we have a more extensive history because Kemet came out quite some time ago, right? Kemet was one of those early games that came out, was a very interesting game because we had played a lot of troops on the map game. I mean, obviously risk is kind of like the one that everyone knows all too well. 
And even in Risk, there is some element of take over a part of the board and turtle until you can make a move. Kemet did something very different. Kemet was all about actually forcing you into battles. Now, Kemet came out in 2012, so, you know, it's it's been a while. And, and Kemet's influence on board gaming is, is quite real. Like, it, it really had a significant impact on the board gaming hobby. It didn't allow players who wanted a troops on the map game just to just do something other than move your troops and do a thing. But nonetheless, Kemet was special because it wasn't just an Amerithrash game. It was a game that allowed you to use a lot of Euro mechanics, and in particular, all the different tiles that came into play in this game. So as you're playing the game and as you're capturing certain sections of the board to score victory points or to hold victory points in the game or to defeat your opponents in order to gain victory points, taking the tiles throughout the game that matched up to your pyramid would give you special abilities and monsters that would radically change the game. And that that kind of mechanic to Kemet really stood out above and beyond. Now, it did have the card, the the battle cards where you basically looked at how many troops and then you had this identical set of battle cards and there was some defense and there was some casualty reports to it and some strength reports. So there was a lot of mechanics to take into consideration when you battled, but the map was small, forcing you to battle. The troops were dynamic as what they could do and especially the monsters, how they could play and the tiles really kind of up the game to the next level. I mean, laying this game out on the table really attracted a lot of attention, and a lot of people liked Kemet. Kemet was a game that was big. It was out of print for quite some time. They did later have multiple expansions, including a Kemet 1.5 version, which was better but still not great. And then the recent kickstarter kemet blood and sand that came out in 2021 really took the best elements of kemet and really upped the game a lot so the map is better it's a lot clearer it's a lot sharper i hated the old map you got a bigger box more clear better graphic design throughout the game it's debatable in some cases but i feel it's it's by far a better uh, graphic design and art system so you can make things out the monsters are bigger, the troops are bigger, the miniatures are far, far better. You no longer have the D4s, you actually do have pyramids that you can build up. And the actual player cards themselves are, you know, dual boarded, so you, you can move up your prayer marker that you use for resources to purchase a number of things throughout the game. They're also beautiful, and the colors and the monsters in this game, and again, They went through the whole game, took all the expansions, threw out all the bad stuff, kept all the good stuff, revised some of the rules, made things a lot clearer and better to play. You obviously had your Divinity cards that came into play. Some of those were revised and changed. And again, overall, it just is a much better presentation of a great game with some better rule set. And if you picked up the Kickstarter, you got these wondrous trays that hold all of the different power car, power tiles, I guess, power tiles that come into play depending on your particular pyramid. 
I picked up the large giant mat that you could play the game with, and that was a lot of fun. Did not paint any of my stuff, but it's certainly worth painting. Um, I mean, the miniatures aren't like super high quality, but they are a good quality nonetheless. So that's Kemet basically in a nutshell, a solid, good, you know, troops on the map game that brings a lot of Euro elements into play and its battle mechanics is really dynamic. Now, Anthony, Ankh, Gods of Egypt by Eric Lang, we already mentioned Blood Rage, came out or was going to come out. I think it came out relatively the same time, right? If I remember correctly, I think it was the same year, but I think Kemet came out first, right? Or was it Ankh? Ankh was on first. first. Ankh was, was first, yeah. We but we knew Kemet was coming. It, they, we had the date and everything. It was gonna. It, it was like Ankh ended, and then three weeks later, Kemet ran or something like that. Which seems really mean. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, why would you do that? Like, I, I don't. I don't understand. Like, I guess like we've seen this in movies, right? There's. I don't know if they knew. I mean, obviously, at some level, they must have known what the other one was producing. So, but they released the games relatively at the same time, both on Kickstarters, and these were really expensive games. And I remember trying to think, you know, like which of these are we going to back? Because I can't, I can't back both of these things. I mean, that would be crazy. That would be buying like a ton of stuff. I mean, yeah, no. sure. <laughs> I'm just like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it so i didn't I same didn't. same no we were in the same boat and then i didn't know i was moving over there so we shouldn't we should have backed different games but we both have we all the same Kemet stuff that's that's yes. no good so. that is no good <laughs> but onks gods of egypt eric lang game and this was again and this is debatable again because who can say these days? But it is different than Kemet. Again, it is troops on the map, right? That popular mechanic and gameplay element. But this time, instead of managing, you know, your troops into battle, you know, as worshippers, in fact, this case, you are actually one of the Egyptian gods. So at the start of the game, you choose one of the beautifully sculpted miniatures and it's a giant miniature because you're an Egyptian god. And then, of course, you have troops throughout the game, and you'll also have an opportunity based upon how you build up your own particular tableau. And again, you have your own wondrous, beautiful little double you know, player board that you'll be able to move your pieces so you can kind of pick off what special abilities you want to have. But there's additional monsters and characters that you'll be able to put into the game. So you have your giant god, counts as a troop. You have some additional mercenary monsters that you could bring in. And you have your priest and other, you know, warriors that come into play. The warriors typically come into play in that kind of ceremonial area where they're going to be able to, whoever has the most in that voting kind of situation, will be able to be able to get that special ability. Not to worry, that person has to take their stuff out. And then if you still remain there, obviously you have a better chance to, to benefit from that special ability later on so you send your priests out for that voting power you send your warriors out there and again like Kemet, but i guess more along the lines of like blood rage there's a lot of elements to ankh that come into play that change the gameplay up so based on what special elements and activities and mercenaries come into play 
different elements come into play. Now, this again, this is going to be the one of the things about Ankh that is going to make the game infinitely replayable. You know, like there's just so much stuff in this Kickstarter. And again, gorgeous Kickstarter. Just, I mean, the miniatures are great. The artwork is fantastic. It, it's just a beautiful production from Simon Games, from Eric Lang. Again, not a surprise. He already did Rising Sun and Blood Rage. So why should this be any different? This is the third in the spiritual series here. Now, this does play a little different. So unlike Blood Rage, you are not particularly picking. You're not doing a draft. You don't necessarily have action points. What you're going to do is choose two actions. And the two actions are on a main board where everyone else is going to take actions. And the actions will allow you put troops out to move troops around. Again, to be able to gain you know, points, be able to build up your, your powers throughout the game. And everyone's going to get to do that. And at some point, that action will kind of overspill and then the board itself, a lower board itself, will move its token to certain battle functions or opportunities to like take camels and create new sections to the board. So not only you taking actions, but other players are taking the same actions. And then there's an opportunity to like not take an action because then it gives someone else the opportunity to score. So there's a lot of considerations here. Ankh is a little different because where Kemet does want you to fight and hold certain areas, really what Ankh wants you to do is to be able to be involved in as many battles as possible because there's always opportunities to score and you do not want to be forgotten. So the victory point track here is about, I guess, the gods' renown. So the more battles you get yourself in, the more things that you win, you are able to move up that victory point track, so to speak, and then win the game itself. Now, if in fact the game goes long and it turns out that it hits a certain part of the track, the last two players will be forced to team up to battle, let's say if we had a four-player game, the top two players. And that's where it really gets messy because now they combine their powers, they combine their, their, their factions, their troops, their actions, and then they play out the rest of the game as almost a catch-up mechanic to be able to take out the winner. So all is not lost for the, you know, the bottom players there because they can combined win the game. And that, in fact, does happen in the game. Just like Hemet, there's a lot of ways to win, a lot of ways to build up your special powers and abilities, but primarily you're scoring as many victory points as possible, and there's a lot of ways to do this. Not radically different, you know, from each other, but of course, two games in the sand, Egyptian gods fighting it out, troops on the map, and taking actions in order to build up their special abilities with the monsters coming into play. Anthony, our versus is everything that is sand this week. And especially since they did, you know, go up against each other on Kickstarter and both did quite successfully. As far as games are concerned, what's your feeling on both of these games? And maybe tell us a little bit about how you think they match up. Yeah, for sure. Um, so as I mentioned, Kemet's the game I backed. And there's two reasons for that. Uh, just to kind of preface all this. One, I had played it before, and I liked it a lot, and I didn't already own it. 
So it was like one of those things where I'm like, oh, I'm happy to have an opportunity to purchase it. I like all of the changes you've described. They address all the issues I have with the original game. And it's one of the better dudes on the map games, period. That has not changed with the new edition. Onk, I, I've been wary of Simon campaigns just generally of late. Um, and Rising Sun didn't click for me the way it did for a lot of people. I just generally didn't enjoy it nearly as much. So I, I just couldn't go all in like two, two, three hundred dollars in another big box game, no matter how much I love Blood Rage. So that's why that happened. Now, all that said, my experience playing Ankh, and I've, I've just played it the one time. I've played Kemet Blood and Sand four times now since it came out because I do have a copy. The experience playing Ankh was interesting. Um, there's a lot of cool mechanics here. There's a lot of really interesting ideas, right? Like the way you're moving around the map, you're building these different monuments. Those kind of determine all these different elements of how, um, like you want to be in a lot of locations, but you want to be too spread out. There's a lot of like strategic things that go into keeping track of what you're trying to accomplish. You know, you're specking out your God throughout the course of the game and choosing which special abilities and bonuses you're going to have. I love all that. I think that's really cool. The game has interesting things though, because there's like a limited number of these special creatures that you can pick up. So whoever gets to them first is going to get them right. There's the kind of the, when you're moving up this track, when you're getting these these points, kind of the renown or whatever it is, some of those things stack up. So if you get like two, three rounds ahead of someone else in terms of your upgrades, you're just going to shoot past them. So there's definitely like a, I wouldn't say it's a problem with the game. I only played it once, so I don't know. But in the game I did play, there's definitely a runaway leader. Um, and so it almost feels like that combining of the two gods at the end is like a catch-up mechanic, if nothing else, right? It's almost like, well, you, you'd have to eliminate the last place player or the last two players because they're not going to catch up. So we'll just combine them, right? Um, and I don't know what I think about that. It didn't happen in our game, so I don't know. But I, I just don't know how that would play out. Uh, Kemen, on the other hand, is a very tightly balanced game. Um, as much as these kind of games can be balanced, it's, I don't know how balanced it actually is, but it just feels tighter, right? everybody's close all the time. And while one person can run away a little bit and get a few more points than someone else, you're it's you're just trying to get to that 10 point mark. So it's this push pull tug of war between the players fighting over these temples, fighting over the pyramids, trying to get the upgrades before someone else. It's a finite amount of materials and it's all in front of you. And you're just trying to utilize it in the most efficient way. And for me personally, that's always a better experience. Um, whereas Ankh kind of had a similar feel to Rising Sun in that it's just kind of this very broad sandbox with lots of different things you can do and lots of different paths you can take. And it's inherently imbalanced because that's the way Eric Lang makes these games it, intentionally. Like it's not broken or anything. It's just there's different cool things you can do and they all kind of trump each other in different ways. Um, so yeah, for me, I like both of these games. But from my own personal preferences and the types of games that I enjoy, Kemet hits so many more boxes. Uh, it, it's not a case of like, like we did Kemet versus Cyclades way back in the day. And that was <laughs> like a sharp, a sharp dividing line among, among the group of which game was good or which game was bad. Um, this isn't that. I don't think Ankh's a bad game. I just don't think it's a me game. Uh, and I can definitely see the controversy over the combining of the gods at the end because of the way the game plays out and because of the way you kind of get 
pushed to the bottom when somebody jumps out. And so the game's response to that is just to mash you together. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know that I would like that, but it does solve the problem and it avoids elimination. So I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting mechanic and I don't, I don't know if I've ever seen it. I'm sure we've talked about this extensively when the Kickstarter came out. I'm sure this was one of our acquisition disorders way back in the day. I mean, obviously, when you play a board game, a lot of times, if you are running last or if you did take a wrong path or a wrong decision, the idea of of continuing to play that game when you know that there's a leader and you can't personally catch up, it's not fun, right? It's it's the opposite of fun, right? You're just sitting there and you're like, am I a kingmaker here? Or am I just like, should I care anymore? Should I still try to win even though I know I can't win? Like, what do you do in that kind of circumstance? So I agree, Anthony. Like, maybe it is as simple as Eric Lang built a game that provided a runaway leader and no one really could do anything about it. So he kind of fixed it, which is kind of genius. I I think primarily the game really does come down to having troops everywhere, especially when you want to have control over the majority of the different buildings on the board, right? So the more you control those different buildings, again, by, you know, initially controlling them and then having troops in those particular areas, that's going to score you points. So, yes, I think at some point, since you can't, again, forgive me, because it's, again, as Anthony said, it was our one time playing the game. I think once you control a building, it's yours. I don't think that there is a way to, you know, retake control. I know that's a mechanic Anthony hates more than life itself. So I think, I think what it was, once, I, th- I think what it was is yeah. you can't take control until all the buildings are full. So, yeah. Which but it, didn't it was happen those, in our case. Yeah. So. And it, yeah, and they weren't all out there on, on the map there. But again, it's one of those situations where the, the winner came up with the game because you can control a lot of those. If, if you strategically place your troops out in those different areas and moving was a little challenging throughout. But So I don't think – I'm not going to fault it for that combined player mechanic because either it fixes the game or it gives players something to do at the end – and a different mechanic is kind of fun. So I, I actually put a plus in their favor as far as that's concerned. What is the challenging part against versus Kemet for me, Anthony, you got troops, you got areas to control. Those Both of those things are almost identical, right? Areas to control is marked on the map. Troops on the board and how they fight is relatively the same. I mean, I know that Kemet has the cards, a more complicated kind of battle system in play but for me the difference of the two games again beautiful miniatures throughout i think on kind of edges out because those gods are like hardcore man like they're amazing yeah. oh yeah can't argue um, with that yeah their their miniatures are just next level kind of stuff and there's so many gods in this game too like there really is just an incredible amount of different choices the difference for me is, and again, this is coming from a pure Euro gamer mechanic, so please don't hate on me. It's just like, I love a good battle war game, troops on the map stuff. But I love to build up a faction. I love building up a faction. I love a tech tree. I love asymmetrical gameplay. This one doesn't allow your particular board to be as radically diverse as Kemet does, where you pick up the tiles 
to be able to build up special abilities throughout and add special monsters. The secondary monsters that come into play are almost like you kind of have to like race to get them. And there's really only three types where in Kemet, there's multiple types in the game. And especially with the Kickstarter, there's almost, almost like an endless number of possibilities that you could play within the game. So the gods are cool. Uh, the gods obviously have their power on that player board, but the gods really don't do that much in comparison to some of the, you know, monsters or gods in Kemet where they do really have a significant impact. Most of the time, the gods are just like moving around to generically claim places, but they don't really have the power that you would think. It's more of the buildings on the map in Kemet that have the power, like you know, if you have the, all the pyramids, you get a special bonus. I know that was something that was nagging at you, Anthony, because I think you had a different type of building that was giving you a defensive bonus. So, yeah. again, both great games. You can't go wrong with either one of these whatsoever as far as I'm concerned because the the, mecha- the losing mechanic combined thing doesn't bother me, especially if you can win without adding that mechanic. The miniatures are both same. It's desert games. It's all good. I don't think that you have to own both of these games. I don't feel the need, you know, because again, and I'm not just talking about this, like if you love a game, buy as many games like it as you can. I think in this case, if you own either of these games, I think you're fine. I don't feel like you need to own the other if you own one. But for me, since I do love building up an asymmetrical faction with special abilities that can be and should be different each and every time, I'm going to choose Kemet. I think Kemet Blood and Sand is a a refinement of so many expansions and a decade of gameplay that I think they just have the history and the tiles is what stands out for me. I think the miniature is the same, the boards are the same, the gods are the same. Ankh definitely has better, bigger miniatures, but the tiles, man, the tiles is what, you know, does it for me. What about you? Yeah, I think, I think we're pretty close on the same page here. Um, yeah, I, I, I should clarify that I'm with you. I don't really have a problem with the combining of the, of the gods at the end. I think it's cool that he thought of it because all of his games have a runaway leader thing. And that's just, <laughs> okay. it's, it's a feature, not a bug, right? That's the way yeah, the game's yeah. supposed to be played. I've played games of blood rage where I won by 200 points. And yeah, the person who lost was like, they basically just wanted to go home. It was like, yeah, yeah I feel bad, but that's just the way the game is. Um, and that's fine. Like, that's just the way those games are designed and that's fine. Um, the, the thing about Ankh and, and the reason that I'm okay not owning it is that it does remind me of a lot of other things. It has feelings of other types of games and it doesn't do any single thing better than any of those other games. It doesn't do it necessarily mm-hmm. worse, but it doesn't do it better, right? It's got flavors of Blood Rage. It's got flavors of Rising Sun. It's got flavors of Kemen and all these things because it's dudes on a map, right? And it just does all those things well, right? This would be, if, if we were rating these, if we were doing traditional reviews, I'd give it a play. Um, Kemet, however, has a couple things that I feel like it does better than a lot of other games, right? And the tiles is number one, right? You mentioned the tiles, in Ankh, you just have those three monsters, and they're not, you don't need them to win, but they're cool and you want them, right? And once they're gone, they're gone, and that's it. Whereas in Kemet, even if you didn't get the monsters, you're going to get tiles. You have to get tiles, right? You're Otherwise, you're not going to win that game. And you, 
like the last game we played together, I think it's the most tiles I've gotten with the new one. I had like 11 tiles in front of me doing all sorts of cool stuff, like additional prayer points and discounts on other things and an extra attack in certain situations and a cool little mummy guy. And yeah, you build out your own little tableau and you get to do different things. And it's different every time because you might say, oh, I'm going to go down this path every time. But then someone else buys one of the tiles that you need to go down that path. Or, you know, there's five different types of uh, power that you could put out there, but you're only going to pick three or four of them in any game, right? Possibly less if you have like only three players. So you have a different combination, which means a different balance of stuff where like maybe it's a very attack heavy game or a very defense heavy game. So that is really cool. And it helps build the game space so that you know what type of game you're going to be playing against everybody before you start. And you know what what direction you kind of want to build up. And yet you still have to be tactical and responsive to what other people are doing. Um, The game forces you to be aggressive. Similar to Ankh, they both do this. But this one in particular, like you have to be fighting or you're not winning. Because otherwise, oh, this person's in three different... uh, uh, temples. If I leave them alone, they're going to win the game in three turns. So you have to go after that. You have to do the work to to kind of to, to combat what other people are doing. Otherwise, you can't win the game. Um, so yeah, Kemet's tighter. It's more condensed, and part of that it has the benefit of having been around for ten years and they've refined it and built on it and fixed a lot of things. The game was not perfect before. It had issues, especially with some of the expansion content that lay- layered in. Some of that stuff was not great. And they've filed off all the edges and kept the stuff that worked and got rid of the stuff that didn't. And the result is a very, very good game. Um, so, yeah, I'm with you. I think Kemet is the better of the two. I wouldn't. I mean, I don't own Ankh and I'm not going to get it. So I guess I wouldn't say that I would own both either. Um, they do feel a little different to me. But at the same time, if you have other Eric Lang games, Blood Rage or Rising Sun, and you have Kemet, then Ankh might be redundant on either side of that. Depending on your preferences, but for me, that's the word it ended up. You know, it's really interesting because as we talk about this, the really thing that the takeaway for me, looking at the board here, is that when you play Ankh, which is gods of Egypt, each of the gods have a special ability. I particularly had the most lamest god in the world, who just <laughs> like turned a spot to water, and I was like, okay. And again, no offense to the god, of course, but also to anyone who actually knows how to play that particular power better but the god has one special thing the other three minor tech trees are identical for all the players and again you could diversify and you can match that up with your special you know how that one single power that you have but that one single power is not radical or dramatic on the game board necessarily and since your god is really just like a troop and you have a not crazy exploitative special ability with that god and everything else is similar i'm kind of shocked that a game that's called gods of egypt the gods don't have like crazy massive destructive um, you know explosive kind of powers on the board you know when you play blood rage and you add the gods they add that similar like it gives you a new rule or it gives you some sort of special ability like it's almost identical here. They're both Eric Lang games. So like the gods don't do anything crazy, radically different. I wanted this game for the gods to really be different. You know, when, when we played a dwelling of elder Vale, like I felt that my faction was different, even though it was nearly identical, but it did feel somewhat different 
the God gave you one additional power and that's primarily it. And I feel like that was in fact, what was lacking from this game was of, you know, a power set for that God, like a, a significant difference from the other gods in the map and not just one thing. And then a super cool kind of amazing miniature in the game. I love blood rage. I even really, I even really like rising sun and those are three Eric. This is the third in the Eric Lang game. I would rather play blood rage and rising sun over this. And I know that you're not the biggest rising sun fan, but I would rather play rising sun than this because I just, and again, this might be my expectations, but the gods don't do what at least a game that is called gods of Egypt feel like it should do. Like they were a little underpowered considering how massive and wondrous their miniatures are. And you know, I, I expect more. Like the Cthulhu Wars game, I, I I felt, or maybe I thought, or maybe again, my missed expectations or false expectations. I thought that's what this should have been, right? Like your god comes on the board and like things happen. That's not really the case here. Like your god just stands around and yeah. just tells tells everyone to do things, like Moon right. Knight. <laughs> Especially like we're watching Moon Knight, we're seeing what the those Egyptian gods are doing, or like. I know. You know, not to, we're not going to spoil anything, but just like stuff happens. They have power. Stuff They're happens, big. bro. They're bigger than life. Let's see it in the game. Yeah, I just didn't see it. And that's really, for me personally, what I wanted to see in Cthulhu Wars is probably the closest I could think of. If you ever, if you never played that again, it's like your God does something massively crazy and Cthulhu esque, I guess. But so I think, Anthony, we are agreed when it comes to the sands and the hourglass, it's certainly certainly tipped its way heavily to Kemet, Blood and Sand. We both picked it up separately on our own. It wasn't kind of a combined decision. So I think that alone kind of really speaks to it. And again, some unfair advantages here. But for me personally, I wanted the gods to, you know, got out there on the board. And the the buildings had a lot more power and relevancy, surprisingly enough. So... Both very good games for me personally, and I think for same for you. A buy for Kemet, a play for Ankh. Hope you all get these both these games to the table. They are certainly both worth playing. And, you know, depending on what you're looking for, both worth owning. All right, Absolutely. everyone. So that's everything for this week. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you all a seat at the table. Take care. Bye.